Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being, sponsored by Medical Protection. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ, with an interest in doctors' well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on well-being, which is especially important for all healthcare professionals during this COVID-19 pandemic. And in this episode, we'll be talking about how we can have better conversations with colleagues about mental health. So Abby, I remember when I had to take time off with my mental health uh, a couple of years ago, and I remember coming back to work and people who didn't know what was going on saying to me, oh, have you been on holiday? And being really surprised. And I said, no, I wasn't on holiday. I had to take time off for my mental health uh, and looking a bit shocked (laughs) that I had said that. Um, uh, That's not in a clinical environment. It's just a a sort of obviously BMJ workplace. Um, But I think there are still huge issues about how much stigma there is still around mental health. Yeah, absolutely. I remember a few years ago where I was having CBT and I needed to have those sessions during work time. So I would leave the office on a Thursday, you know, for an hour or two and come back. And I didn't want to tell anyone that's what it was for, apart from my manager. So um, I just kind of kept it my... I'm so sure people thought, where's she going? But um, looking back, I think now I'd be much more confident to say that's what it was maybe because we talk about mental health a lot more these days than we did kind of four or five years ago. But that's, as you say, not a clinical environment. So I'm going to be really interested to hear from our guest about how doctors who, on the one hand, care for patients who suffer from mental health conditions actually deal with it within their own cohort. Absolutely. Well, we are absolutely delighted to have on the podcast someone who has experienced this and is happy to talk to us about it today. Welcome. And could you please introduce yourself? Uh, Yeah, thanks, Abby and uh, Kat. My name's Ash Lillis. I'm a consultant in acute medicine working at the Whittington Hospital in North London. Um, I also work as a policy advisor in Macmillan Cancer Support, looking at uh, palliative care and acute cancer care. So you've been a little bit busy recently, Ash. Yes, yes. Acute medicine has kept me very busy. I'm currently one of the uh, consultants looking after a respiratory support COVID ward, um, which has been a really tough couple of months. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I can't even imagine what it's been like. Um, so why is this something that's so important to you? Well, for me, I'm really, really proud of how I've got through my experience of mental health. And I kind of feel like sharing and talking about it is a little bit of a superpower. Like this is the most important thing I can do about what was an extremely traumatic experience. So my experience of mental health comes initially back in 2015. I was a dual trainee in acute medicine and intensive care medicine, which is a pretty good recipe for burnout. And I'd slowly, I think, been realising that being an intensivist didn't make me very happy. But like many doctors and many copers and people who are really proud of being good doctors, I carried on and carried on until one night shift uh, at Royal London ITU. I just said, I can't do this anymore. And I thought I was going to take two weeks off and come back. I only had six months left to finish my ITU training and... I never went back. I took quite a bit of time off. I became quite anxious 
and depressed about that decision making and slowly put myself back together with the help of uh, friends, family and the practitioner health programme who have been a part of my career since then. I slowly got better and actually when I came back what you said about talking about it Kat was so powerful. I went back to clinical practice to finish acute medicine training and everyone's like oh why are you back in this hospital weren't you supposed to be doing intensive care and I said oh no I realised I hated it. I left, I quit, it's the best thing I've ever done and the response that I get from colleagues as a senior reg um, was but how could you give up? You were so close to finishing. I was like, but it made me unhappy. And that took a long time to say, I'm I'm okay with that choice. And through my finishing training and then becoming a consultant two years ago, I continued to have CBT. I continued to have psychological support um, with Practitioner Health Programme, which was amazing. And gave me a space where I said, I'm looking after myself. And then 2020 happened, which, you know, we've, we're part of a group of people who have seen a uniquely difficult time. Um, sadly, mine started a little bit before the pandemic when my otherwise fit and healthy dad was diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer and died 13 days later, which was hugely traumatic. I'm from a big Irish Catholic family. We're very, very close. And looking after him at the end of his life was the best and worst thing we've ever done as a family. But I said, I'm ready to go back to work after four to six weeks. And I really felt I was ready. But that COVID virus was sitting in the background waiting to cause trouble. And After about six days of being in hospital, I realised I was going to be looking after a lot of people who were going to die of breathlessness. And I spoke to my psychologist, I spoke to my colleagues, I said, I am going to be no use to you. I can't be here. Um, I can't function. And I had a breakdown and had to take nearly two months off, um, spending quite a lot of time in my sister's spare room watching MasterChef Australia um, enthusiastically taking up exercise because we're all very guilty about trying to actively recover as best we can, especially looking at my colleagues, dealing with all of these people. But recognising it, stepping out and really putting the work into getting better, um, having that support from practitioner health meant after two months, I felt like, do you know what? I think I can go back. I think I can be part of that. And that drive to do medicine was very healing, but also having to not be absolutely in charge of everything was very difficult. When I came back was really interesting. When that second time coming back as a consultant, not a registrar, and bumping into lovely trainee doctors, you know, Ashling, I'm so glad to see you. I'm so sorry I heard about what happened. How are you? And I would say, oh yeah, my dad died. It was really awful. I had a breakdown, but I'm feeling so much better. Medication, exercise, time off, psychology input, and I'm back. And I was walking along with a consultant colleague and we walked away from this junior doctor and she went, I can't believe you just said that. 
And that was the moment where I was like, oh, this is really, really important. Ash, there's so much there that I'm in awe of and just completely respect your the way that you obviously were able to say, no, I'm not I'm not in a place that I should be and took this you know, took a step to take yourself out of it. Because I often think when you're unwell, that's often the hardest thing is to recognise it and have the kind of togetherness of mind to make those decisions. I wonder what it was like the very first time that you decided to leave intensive intensive care training and what the reaction was at that point in time from both your seniors and your peers it was really interesting because we're so goal directed in medicine there is the next hurdle there is the next box to tick which means life's quite straightforward throughout your 20s and early 30s you're not really encouraged to take stock Think about your values. Think about what makes you happy in your career. So the fact that I got all the way to ST7 intensive care medicine, the response of most people was, oh, but why didn't you just finish it? And it took me a while to figure out why I couldn't finish it. Because like many doctors, if I'd finished it, I would have felt I had to take a job in it. And... By spending that time to say, this doesn't fit with my values, this is not what I want to be doing, I could leave. But people were so shocked that I just quit with months to go. And it was also because I'd always been, as an acute medic, you're kind of one of those people who loves a crisis, who, you know, there's the arrest call and you're the med reg and it's really satisfying. And you see all these junior doctors and they're like, oh, great, you're here. And then for me to come back and say, look, I, you know, I couldn't function. That that was, you know, the shock on their face of, oh, right. Well, if you can have that problem, maybe it's okay to talk about it. That's really fascinating. I mean, even at the start of this podcast, I say, oh, I'm a trained GP uh, and I am, but I haven't practiced since 2015 it's not like you go around saying I'm a trained intensivist you know um and I think when I chose to to give up my GP practice and and focus on being an editor I still feel in some way that I've failed you know I've got a great job at the BMJ you know it's really privileged I love it I really enjoy my work and yet I still feel that somehow I've given up or not been able to cope with clinical practice. So it's extraordinary, these um, narratives and and kind of um, roles that, that we as clinicians can so often put on ourselves that, that aren't don't ultimately serve us. So anyway, I wanted to dive into this um, talking about it issue, Ash, and, you know, what, what, where do you think your colleague was coming from when they said to you, like, I can't believe you just said that? I think it's both a cultural thing, like we've, like um, you said earlier, Abby, you know, you'd feel more able to talk about it. I think strangely, healthcare professionals are less open about their own mental health than wider um the, the wider society. I think that because we see ourselves as caregivers, as leaders, as people who, you know, look after others, 
however we're feeling, it's not as bad as our patients. So it invalidates so many of those difficult feelings that we have. You know, I should be okay. I shouldn't be able, you know, we shouldn't have these mental health problems. And I think that internalised stigma is so strong in healthcare professionals. You know, I don't have it as bad as, especially now, the family of my patient who's on CPAP, the, you know, the, the scared person who needs to be intubated. You know, I can't have trauma because they've they've got it. Whereas actually stress, trauma, anxiety, your experience of it is not related to the environment you're in. So when I am, have been very unwell with anxiety, only the tiniest thing can make you feel as though your heart's leaping out of your chest and you can't do anything. But that's just as traumatic. Whereas other people thrive and have thrived through the pandemic. And it's not weakness or strength. It's something about your personality, your values and your ability to, you know, tolerate what other people may say is stress. I think it's interesting what you say about the way that doctors react because I as a non-clinician I feel like if anyone should understand that you know mental health isn't always directly related to your circumstances it should be clinicians you know if I if I'm suffering particularly from my depression that I suffer from my partner sometimes says oh why are you sad there's nothing to be sad about and I have to say well it's not about being sad this isn't what this is he's not a cl- clinical person whereas I as a layperson I think well at least you know a medical person would understand that yeah you'd, you and I think it is getting better you know the fact we're doing this podcast and people come on and talk about moral injury values PTSD it's so much more open than it was but I've had colleagues disclose feeling so unwell because I've talked about it openly and they haven't said it to anyone and you just wonder why we why we put ourselves through that why we expect something different from ourselves than we do for our patients it's I don't know I'm no expert in psychology I'm a acute medic I'm a fixer but it's fascinating to me that that exists so powerfully across the healthcare profession we've talked about kind of you know your sense of self and being a coper and being a caregiver but but I wonder if there's something around the culture the clinical culture around also feeling that if you can't do it what you're doing is you're forcing that load onto other people in your team and how difficult it is to save yourself at the expense of everybody else and I'm just really interested to hear your kind of reflections on that particularly going off you know in the middle of the COVID crisis it's the guilt that we experience is and it was debilitating the reason I took up exercise the reason I started taking some medication was I have to get better as quick as I possibly can so I can take the load off my colleagues that was the motivation like I was absolutely focused on it my family were laughing they were just like you're you're literally like you're so depressed but you're literally just doing this like that's 
that guilt is really hard. And it's what I've said to colleagues, like, you just need some time off. You need to not be here. And that's okay. I think the one the one moment that really got me was when I was telling someone that I'd been off and why I'd been off and my dad and mental health problems. And they said, oh, I'm so glad you chose to take that time for yourself. And I was like, I had a breakdown. I couldn't get out of bed. Like it wasn't a choice. <laughs> but that's, it's like if you'd had a broken arm or a broken leg, there is no choice. But if you have a breakdown and you can't get out of bed, that was a choice for me. And my choice would have been to be there. Like I am totally, like I have intensive care skills. I'm in acute medicine. I love a crisis. I was made to be part of that team. And it's been really satisfying in a horrible way to be to be doing that for the last two months. But it's so hard to say, well, you know, this was this happened to me and I couldn't work. And I think that guilt is huge, especially pressures from above and pressures from below as a senior doctor. So we get all this pressure to, you know, we're going to get a lot of pressure to rebuild better soon, you know, to support our junior doctors through an awful period of training. But how much resilience has the cohort of consultants across the NHS got? Probably not a lot. And I think unless we really think about how to support people and actively say this is part of your work and part of your self-care, we're going to have an epidemic of people having to not be at work. Thanks, Ash. We'll touch a bit more on that in a second. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. At Medical Protection, we know how challenging recent times have been for all medical practitioners. And as they work tirelessly to look after others, we wanted to help our members focus on their own physical, mental and emotional well-being. So we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a confidential one-to-one counselling service, offering support for issues such as stress, burnout, anxiety and conflict. Members can also access a wellness app to help monitor, measure and promote balanced healthy living, as well as a host of handy podcasts and webinars. Our wellbeing programme is just one of many reasons for doctors to choose medical protection. To find out more about membership, which also includes comprehensive protection, advice and risk prevention support, visit medicalprotection.org. Ash, that's a really important point that I'd like to pick up on because often in the conversations we've had in the past, we've talked about more senior doctors supporting their colleagues and trainees, but we don't talk that often about support for people at the kind of the top of that pyramid. I mean, what kind of interventions or or measures do you think would be helpful to try and support that cohort? Well, I think a lot of it is taking up the offers that exist. So the work that I did when I came back to Macmillan was helping with a well-being hub of like well tailored, useful, small interventions um, for clinicians to use for themselves and their teams. I think doctors are very focused on, well, if I if I use it, I can support my team. And I think that's always a really good way in um, with psychology, with senior doctors. Because it's like, well, okay, I'll do it, but I'll do it for my team. So reflective practice can be really helpful. 
But I think Claire Dramartha and the Practitioner Health Programme talk very clearly about the fact that there is something different about senior doctors and what they need and disclosing uncertainty and saying, I'm not okay, is really difficult. So what I'd say is I basically had supervision. So psychological supervision like psychologists have and like psychiatry have with practitioner health the whole way through my consultant career. And the decisions that my colleagues and myself are making at the moment, having psychological supervision built into job plans, saying you must, you know, psychiatrists, that's good, that's good practice. They're told they have to do it. Well, shouldn't we be doing that for, you know, physical health consultants who are making these, you know, very difficult uh, consultations, decisions, and you, we do get great support. My colleagues are amazing, but I can't really imagine a group of consultants all sitting around and sharing that they don't feel that they made the right call. So perhaps it's more about a one-to-one um, for those people than the fantastic group practice that we see. So we did a great thing at the Whittington with a programme where they interviewed nearly 50 healthcare professionals, people who worked across the trust um, with psychologists and actors and turned it into a um, small drama called In Our Own Words. And it was so powerful because it gave people an opening. They heard the words reflected from other people. And it's, you know, some, the people who need it the most probably don't go to that stuff. It's like we have Schwartz rounds, which are, you know, fantastic reflective groups. But the people who love them, like me, are already the people who's talking about it. So it's something about saying everyone's mental and physical health are important as part of your professional development. Mm. Absolutely. When you were speaking, Ash, I was thinking about Schwartz rounds and thinking, yeah, they might work really well for some people, but there is something about that that one-to-one support. Um, I, I remember doing a, a job in a, a sexual assault centre uh, and where we had mandated psychological support and, and just thinking, gosh, I would have loved this six months ago when I was working in an elderly care ward where, you know, some of the uh, experiences were, were so, much, so much more traumatic even than, than supporting patients in what was ostensibly and, and what is a very traumatic time, but, but with very clearly defined goals and support and structures. So, as you said, there are so many things that can make an experience in a clinical care episode traumatic for staff. Um, we need to be really kind of broad minded about that. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, given that the people who maybe most need to be able to talk about these things may not access the formalised support structures that are there. And given that, I mean, you know, this small sample of people, three of us on this podcast, all of us have experienced mental health conditions that required intervention. um, What can we do to start having these conversations with colleagues and provide an opening for them to start exploring their own mental health? I think it's it's really difficult because what feels easy to some people around mental health feels totally insurmountable to others. So it's not better or worse that I talk about mental health all the time. 
In fact, we have a laugh in our team. It's like, oh, she's banging on again about this. But others may find that completely intolerable. And I don't know how we can change the stigma around it that quickly. I think it is about things like this, you know, people saying it out loud. But how about our senior leaders across the NHS? Have we heard a single medical director or chief exec stand up and say, I have suffered with this problem. This has been extremely stressful. These are the things that help. I can't I can't think of any. You know, so how how on earth can it be that consultants and then registrars and everyone will feel able to share a more rounded picture of themselves? I think the change for appraisal this year, the streamlined appraisal with a real focus on well-being would be, you know, it's a first in a good step. But the problem is, if you don't get on with your appraiser or what that system looks like, that pastoral care to for doctors should be like we talk about for psychiatrists, palliative care, oncology. It's it's traumatic and we need to be more open. I've found colleagues coming to talk to me so much since I've come back. Like, and I try and talk about it. It's not my job to counsel people and it never should be, but, you know, simple um, simple ways of talking about stress and anxiety. So uh, my psychology service talked to me about the traffic light system, which is, you know, green is calm. You can cope. Your resilience is way up. How do you top that up? Amber is, I'm feeling quite stressed out. And how how do I identify the triggers that are going to help? And then red is, you know, one email could, you know, topple the pile of cards. So I often say to my colleagues, it's like, seems like it's quite amber at the moment. Like it's not taking much to stress you out. And I think checking in and talking like that and making it part of our hierarchy of, how we look after people in directorates. And some places are doing it fantastically. You know, it's it's difficult to face all of the problems across and change stigma. But language as well is so important. Um, I've had some really interesting responses to using the word breakdown. Because, um, I don't know, it's is it quite old-fashioned? Um I don't think most GPs use it, but I kind of owning that language for me. Like I said, oh, I was completely bonkers. People are like, oh, no, you weren't. I was like, oh, no, 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 I totally was. Um, or breakdown completely works for me because I was like, well, I couldn't move. I was broken. I needed a lot of work and then I got back on the road. So for me, it's it's the perfect analogy and any good car can break down at any time. So it's more practical and honest to say it's, you know, it, it doesn't um, it doesn't change me. I'm the same person I was, you know, none of us are exactly the same after 2020. But, you know, I, I, am, I am generally the same person and it doesn't change you into that person. I wonder if that language others it. I do worry about that. that people go, oh, well, I wasn't as mad as her. Um, you know, that's. If I say I had a breakdown, they were like, well, I'm not that bad. But it's not top Trump's psychology and having a bad time. 
you know, people were like, oh, well, my dad didn't die. You know, I know you had a much worse time. You're like, well, that's not how it works. That's not, that's not how we would treat our patients. We wouldn't say, oh, that's not as bad as the person in bed, bed three. They're having a much worse time than you. You should cheer up a bit. But we expect that of ourselves. It's very strange. I think you you hit on loads of different things for me there when you were talking about that. This idea of not wanting to be that person. And I personally still struggle with how will people perceive me once I've told them that I suffer with mental health problems? So for the first time ever before Christmas, I was so stressed out. I decided I'd take a day off sick for my mental health. And I've never done that before. But I made a point of telling my colleagues afterwards that's why I'd done it. And before I did, I thought, oh my God, they're all going to think about me differently. This is going to be awful. They'll think I can't do my job. And although at the time I was kind of met with silence, afterwards in private, a colleague got in touch and said, I'm really glad that you said that because I've been struggling too. And it made me think maybe this is a bit like, you know, asking for a pay rise. The first time you do it is really hard, but maybe the next time it gets a bit easier. Yeah, like I say, oh, I'm really sorry, guys, I have to leave the ward. I've got psychology at 2.30. Just, this is normal. This is fun. I've done a good ward round. I've taught you something. I've had some hard conversations. And now at 2.30, I've got an appointment with psychology. I've got to go. And hopefully that role modelling will help those senior regis, those junior doctors, those nurses say similar things. It's hopefully a domino effect. But it is really scary. It is really scary. And I wonder in healthcare, as Kat's already said, it's scary combined with, but if I'm not here, there's no one else to do the job. And there's that extra pressure, you know, that I don't have in my role, but you have on the front line and how, I don't know how you, you know, balance those two things. But I'm trained to do it it's no it, it isn't different I think that's the most important thing is I I and my colleagues are not more important than anyone else you know I happen to have gone into acute medicine and done a lot of respiratory support so my skills meant that I could do the work I have not you know fallen into pieces or needed to take time off over the last two months because this is what I'm trained to do so it's when people go, oh my God, it must be so awful. I'm like, well, looking after my dad was much worse because no one signs up to do that. You know, that's that's traumatising. This is really hard, but I'm with these amazing colleagues. When I took time off and I kind of told people and got in touch, you know, as they were getting in touch over kind of March, April, I talked to one friend who's a clinical lead, you know, runs the show. And he just went, do you know what, Ashling? This crisis is not Ashling dependent. And I've said that to so many people who are like recovering from COVID or on mat leave, you know, that guilt's like, you're not that, you're not that important. We will, we will, we'll sort this without you. Um, which is hard because we've all got a bit of ego. Um, so it was a bit bit of a disappointment that they could just do it without me anyway. My theory on this is though, and you two are both going to tell me I'm completely wrong. My theory is a non-medic. Here, do you want to hear this? I feel like you have to be trained to a certain extent to believe that you are that important. 
because of the types of decisions that you have to make. I think Kat's going to disagree with me on this. But um, <laughs> that's how I, I, I kind of see this. That there's in, there is an encouragement to believe medics are kind of, you're the best of the best, you're the smartest of the smartest, and, you know, your decision is right. So you Because otherwise, how would you cut someone open in an operating theatre if you could, didn't have that kind of belie- belief in your own decisions? You can tell me I'm wrong now. No, I like it. I think I think the thing is that infallibility and the belief in yourself bordering on narcissism is probably more common in some specialties. Um, but there is, you know, I think you're kind of right. You, you know, I see as a generalist physician, my, my skill set is I'm willing to make a call. I'm willing to have the conversation. I'll, you know right, it looks like this person isn't going to make it. It's really important we recognise that, have a conversation. And I'm not going to second guess that if we could do this, if we could do that. Whereas if you're someone who's naturally detailed, focused and want to be very balanced, you may be more of a subspecialist. And although it's not completely related to what we're talking about, the feeling of just getting on with it and thinking you're right is very satisfying you know, it is, It is. you know, that's why I went into acute medicine and why people have really looked to us as generalists to kind of lead the way with COVID because it's, you know, the decision needs making. There's someone who will make it. Mm-hmm. I think that's very much, I'm just going to reflect on what you said, Ashley. I think that's very much sort of the case in general practice as well. You know, you, you have to make a decision every 10 minutes. Um, there's only so many times you can defer making a decision and bring someone back or send them for an investigation or send them up to your colleagues at the big white shiny building. Um, and you have to accept a certain amount of risk. You know, you have to, you have to accept the risk that you're going to be wrong. Um, I would say that you need to be very aware of your fallibility and you need to be work very closely in partnership with your patients to come to that decision. Um, so in some ways I think, you know, ego does get in the way um but i think as you do have to have that that ability to to take the risk i think it's about um, not thinking you can alter the course of diseases i've reflected quite a lot on the parallels between my dad's illness and covid you know rapid respiratory failure over two weeks and we couldn't fix lung cancer and we can't fix covid the and i say to patients and i've you know you develop your way of talking to people i said we don't have treatments to change the course of this illness we can try and support a body but if the body isn't strong enough and the disease is attacking every organ there's no magic you know they're ventilating that person and this is one of the reasons i gave up intensive care because i really really felt like those conversations if they'd happened, patients wouldn't end up on ventilators at the end of their life. So it's kind of come full circle for me that my training and then my personal experience and now the pandemic in my professional life have all kind of reinforced my values, which means I can get up and go to work and not freak out that I'm making the wrong call. What you just said, Ash, actually reflects really nicely what we heard from our uh the guest on our previous co- podcast, Professor Neil Greenberg, he what he said, which I thought was really nice, was that, you know, COVID isn't your fault. 
it's COVID's fault that these bad things have happened. Not that you've done not done your job well. But my question for you, Ash, is it was a simple one and you probably feel like you've already answered it, but I wonder if there was someone listening to this podcast who was really struggling and didn't know where to turn, what your advice might be for them. I think it's about being honest with yourself and saying, do you know what, this is not okay. This is too much for me right now and that's not weakness. I think what I've pointed junior colleagues and senior colleagues like is to go to practitioner health and try and do something objective that helps you reflect that you may well need help. So there's some fantastic kind of burnout questionnaires. And I think when people do those and they see it reflected back on them, they're like, oh, this is not normal. I should try and get some help. And I think especially doctors, we need to have something objective to say this is this is not normal. It is OK. You need to get help. However you seek that kind of depends on the kind of person you are and how much you feel like you can talk to the people who are your clinical or educational supervisors, your line manager. I work in a nearly entirely female department, an entirely uh, female uh, exec team in my trust. and I think it does change the way we talk about these things. So I felt very confident and I've had lots of junior doctors come to me to disclose. But if your educational supervisor or clinical supervisor isn't someone that you've got a pastoral relationship with, you can find someone else that you care, like you think will respond appropriately. You can go to your GP. My GP was amazing back in 2015. You know, just don't worry, take the time. You know, we we forget that... Our colleagues in general practice do this every day. You know, the expertise that primary care has in managing these problems can be someone saying, you don't seem very well, take the time. And then the specialists, you know, there's huge amounts of resources. We've got the Macmillan Wellbeing Hub, which I I think has got some really good stuff, but also NHS People has got lots of small interventions, plans for self-care, practitioner health if you're a doctor it's open to to doctors and I can't thank them more more strongly than how they've supported me to get back to my career so it's it's going to be different for you but the most important thing is just tell someone tell yourself and say do you know what I'm my mental health and my career is a long haul a couple of months here or there is a hiccup in the road I thought taking time off during the peak of a global pandemic was the worst thing I could possibly do. I, you know, I'd come back and I wouldn't understand anything that had happened. People would be, you know, giving me the cold show because I wasn't there. And you realise it was it was weeks. And when I had some energy, when everyone else needed to have some time off, that was a powerful, useful tool for the team. And you know, don't don't be so hard on yourself. Treat yourself. I said this to someone yesterday. Be as kind to yourself as you are to your patients. Well, 
Kat, I thought that was a really great discussion with Ash. She's obviously a really brave woman and, and what she's gone through, it sounds like it's now helping her colleagues also reflect on their own sort of mental health issues as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about stigma around mental health before on the podcast with, you know, crazy socks for dogs and things like that. But I think just being able to have these really open conversations about the fact that we're all human um, and that we have these immense kind of emotional and mental health and and spiritual sometimes needs um, that that have to be addressed and recognised and are so often minimised or completely discounted in some of the kind of structures and experiences that we have in the workplace. I think it's just really brilliant to be having those conversations. Mm. And it was really nice to hear from her about how she'd made that decision to change special the specialty she was training in because I think that's not a story that you hear often and I liked her point about how sort of during medical training there's not often a time to, that you can stop and reflect on what it is that you really want and I I kind of wanted to ask you what you thought of that and whether it kind of um, in any way reflected your own training. Yeah I mean I think it really varies according to your sort of age and stage so you know I was at the era where they just brought in um MTAS and run through training so it was very much once you got on the treadmill of your training post it was pretty difficult to step off um, but I'd like to think these days that there are more opportunities for people to take career breaks and less so at the moment obviously with COVID um, but there are more and more kind of fellowships in various things from you know medical education to clinical leadership um, in those sort of areas slightly outside specialties um, and we see a lot of people taking F3 years after foundation training um, and to sort of be able to take that time to reflect on what their strengths and interests are so I'm hoping that some of those structures will help people to be able to reflect more when they're making those career choices but I think ultimately that ability to to not feel absolutely tied down to those decisions and not feel that you've wasted however many years of your life going down a particular career path is so important um and obviously in general practice you see quite a lot of people who trained in medical specialties and then and then moved over um and i think just recognizing that all of those years of experience and training in whatever specialty are going to be hugely translatable to to any other um, medical career or a career outside medicine. Um, and we not ha- don't have to sort of feel guilty or feel that we failed if we choose to, to reflect on are, are those career choices still serving us, you know, at a different point in our lives and, and should we be changing them? Absolutely. And I often... When I speak to my sister sometimes when she's in a very stressful place, I say to her, you know, you don't have to be a doctor. This isn't, you didn't sign your whole life away to, to be a doctor. If it, if it turns out that this isn't what you want to do, that's okay. Not because I think she'll go, oh, actually, I don't want to be a doctor. But I think sometimes it helps to be reminded that you do have a choice and these things aren't always as permanent as they feel sometimes. Absolutely. And I think it's really difficult because in so many ways, healthcare is a vocation, but Mm. it operates on both levels. Yes, it's a vocation, but also it's just a job. Um, And you have to sometimes remind yourself that it is just a job and it's not necessarily worth sacrificing everything else else in your life to that job, including your your mental health. Mm. The only other thing I wanted to reflect on was at the beginning of the podcast, we both talked about kind of our own mental health. And I know that you've been very open um, kind of at work talking about your mental health. And I was reflecting on how I was a bit less open about talking about when I had CBT. But I think 
what I'll take away from the interview with Ash is actually if you do talk about it at work with colleagues it does help other people and even if you know I'm not saying I'll talk about it all the time but maybe I'll, it will make me a bit more open in the future if I think oh other people might go oh it's okay to talk about it I can talk about it too. Absolutely I think it's a really powerful intervention into a system and um, I feel like it's a bit like miscarriage which is still a hugely taboo area for lots of people um, but it's amazing once one discloses um, if you've had a miscarriage how many other people will then reach out to you and go oh do you know what I've had a miscarriage or you know I've had a miscarriage and I think mental health is is very similar I I mean, it's astonishing how many people you learn are having therapy or taking antidepressants once you start talking about it. So I think the more we can have um, these conversations, the more of a powerful intervention it will be. Definitely. Well, that's all we have time for for now. Thanks so much to our guest, Dr. Ash Lillis, for coming on the podcast. And check us out on social media. We're at BMJ underscore latest on Twitter, or you can join the BMJ Wellbeing Group on Facebook. We'd love to hear your ideas for what we should cover in future episodes. Until next time, it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye.